0: Seem to go That you don't know what you got Till it's gone They pay paradise And put up a parking lot With a pink hotel A boutique And a swinging hot spot Seem to go That you don't know what you got Till it's gone They pay paradise And put up a parking lot They took all the trees And put them in a tree museum And they charged all the people A dollar and a half Just to see them to go, that you don't know what you got till it's gone. They
1: pay paradise up a parking lot. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, July 23rd, 2017. My name is James Reno, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater re- writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared online at Time Out New York, playbill.com, Broadwayworld.com and New Good morning, Jenna.
2: Good morning. Good morning.
1: Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist whose work appears at Talk and Broadway, Everything Sondheim, and Broadway Stars. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us today, we have a very special guest. Jessica Malasky is joining us by tel- via telephone. Uh, Broadway fans know that Jessica is a veteran of dozen Broadway shows, including the revival of Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Sunday in the Park with George, which was nominated for nine Tony Awards. She appeared in A A Man of No Importance at Lincoln Center, Parade, Dream, Tommy, Crazy Few, Les Miserables, City of Angels, Chess, Cats in Oklahoma. She most recently played the role of Marie in City Center Encore's production of The Most Happy Fella*. Her off-Broadway credits include Songs for a New World, Dream, True, Wise Guys, Weird Romance... Uh, Jessica, thank you get, for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us.
3: <laughs> that made me tired, just hearing, hearing those, some of those shows that uh, were off Broadway.
1: <laughs> so we'll only spend about 15 minutes on each one of those, so sit back, <laughs> get a bagel and coffee. Uh, okay. but, but more importantly than anything else is that uh, those are in the past. Let's talk about the future. We have a new uh, CD coming out called Portraits of Joni. Uh, and you also have an appearance coming up at Birdland in August. So, tell us about Portraits of Joni.
3: Well, uh, about three years ago, I think it was, Tina Landau, the wonderful director Tina Landau, said, "I want you to come see me, with me, to see Tom Kitt at the American Songbook at Lincoln Center." Uh, and we got there, and we were looking for our tickets, and. Uh, John Nakagawa and Charles Connolly, who, who uh, you know, are the, the curators of that, uh, the American Songbook, said, you guys are a month off. Like, we were literally a one month off. We were at the wrong concert. <laughs> and he said, but while you're here, what would you like to do next year? And I said, "Johnny Mitchell. I didn't even think about it. So we did an evening of Joni and I got some amazing jazz musicians and great Brazilian uh, bossa nova players and we did this and so many people have said when are you going to make a record of that evening so we did and that is what Portraits of Joni is and it's coming out next week and I'm very proud of it we have some amazing sort of you know jazz players and some of the same bossa nova players that we had uh, at Lincoln Center and my daughter and my husband. (laughs) No, okay. Really
1: <laughs> who's on a plane right
4: now, or maybe who's
3: on a plane way. coming back from Paris <laughs>
4: yeah now you had you had performed uh individual songs of hers before. yeah before.
3: Yes. well, I started at the Carlisle, you know because we started at we'd been doing the Car- the Carlisle the cafe Carlisle for about what eleven years I guess is this year, and um. You know, we would do the American songbook, Then I would start to push back the edges of the envelope and say, let me do a couple of Joni songs and see what happens. And, you know, people would come up and say thank you Um, because, you know, that is the American songbook, the North American songbook, at least, uh, to me anyway. And uh, so, you know, that's the demographic is, you know, anywhere from like, you know, people 65 and younger. Uh, My daughter is 19 and she knows the songbook back and forth. you know. Yeah. I don't think those songs are, the Joni songs are sort of universal and uh, that hurt my daughter's generation loves Joni Mitchell.
0: Mm.
3: And I, you know, I, 1974 when I was a kid, changed my life because I got, somehow uh, Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark and Little Night Music came out the same year. <laughs> and I thought, <got,
4: laughs>
3: Steven Sondheim and Joni Mitchell and it still never changed for me.
4: Well actually though, though, of course um uh the, there was the famous recording of of um Send of the clowns by um Judy Collins. Yes. Uh I think it would have been a good one a good fit for Joni's voice as well.
3: Yeah, I wonder I wonder if the two um the two of them well I don't know did well Joni Mitchell did do, she did cover um some Vincent Newman songs and stuff like that. I don't know if she did any more contemporary covers mm. uh, other than her own stuff. Right. So, so
2: your, sorry. Go ahead, Jen. Go ahead, <laughs> Jen. Oh, I was going to say your professional uh, relationship with, uh, with your husband has been called the marriage of 42nd street and 52nd street. Where would you place <laughs> this album in that, in that world? Since you've, your albums and your shows have combined those two worlds. Well, you know, Joni Mitchell was more
3: um, Lambert. I mean, she. she that, I I learned about jazz through Joni Mitchell, Lambert's Hendrix and Ross. She did. My analyst oh, told yeah. me "Twisted," and I thought that was Joni's song, and because t- I was such a young kid. And <laughs> then I figured out what it was, and I remember talking to Annie Ross, and she said, "I didn't know who Joni Mitchell was, but all of a sudden, like people were calling me up on the phone and buying, wanting to buy my records," and and she made uh, quite a bit of money, I guess because Joni oh, good. recorded Twisted. But Joni was uh, really a jazz aficionado before she was a pop person. Um, she was more influenced by jazz players than she was by the Beatles. Um, so I feel like we're doing her justice in a way by putting uh, her songs, setting them in a real jazz vernacular with like Randy Brecker, whose brother played on a lot of Joni's songs, <clears throat> plays on uh, Dry Cleaner from Des Moines on my record. Oh yes, that was that was gorgeous. Yeah, he just walked in and did it. <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> so uh, it's been—I uh, I don't want to say exciting—but you've had a um, qu- quite a last couple of months. Uh, we're oh. really happy to have you on the phone here because you—you you had a terrible accident uh, a couple of months ago.
2: I,
3: you know, I did. I came up to my little house in the country, my husband and my daughter and I, we we had a rare five days we were going to just hang out at our little lake house. And I was in a parking lot and a, out of nowhere, a guy who was looking at his telephone in a large commercial van hit me really hard uh, while I was walking and I was in the hospital for three weeks. I broke a lot of things, but I can, I broke my ribs and my pelvis and everything and um Ooh. i uh i'm doing great <laughs> I, I can't tell you i'm just walking i'm i actually swam yesterday and i'm singing and um and it, it's really amazing the recuperative powers of the body but jonathan schwartz you know who has a great radio show in new york i was telling you guys before uh he was he's so sweet. He went on the air, but he kept saying, Mulaski got hit by a truck, and here's this song. <laughs> <laughs> and so everyone was riding me and concerned, and I, and I just want to let everybody know that I'm doing really well.
4: Well, I had seen you and John at Sardi's a, a couple of months ago, just going on the way in, and I, I'm not sure what event you were headed to, and I didn't get a chance to say hi, but then I heard about this, and I thought it must have happened right afterwards, and I was so sad, but I'm, of course very happy that it turned out the way it did.
3: Yeah, I'm the luckiest. Um, <laughs> there's a little joke about being the luckiest person in show business, but I actually am the luckiest person in show business. I didn't hit my head, but everybody... Everybody needs to put their telephones down. Like, yes. even if you're in the car yes. for four seconds and you think, oh, that's a text, don't wait.
4: Hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, Michael McKean, uh, as you may know, had a very serious accident a, a few years ago. And he said, the thing is, I can't even tell people to be careful crossing the street because I wasn't crossing the street. Uh, he was <laughs> standing on the curb and somebody came up on the curb. So you can, all, you know, one can be careful, but we can't right. be careful for other people. And <laughs> so. No, I
3: know. And it's it, that's the hard part about it. That's the hard part of the recuper- recuperation process for that. Yes, but you know when people say, I feel like I got hit by a truck, I can actually say it. <laughs> and it's not metaphorical. <laughs> Think positive. <laughs>
1: you can tell your daughter, can you pick that up? You
3: know, I just got hit by a truck. You know? <laughs> I've I've gotten some good good leeway from a lot of things from it. <laughs> Oh leverage. God.
1: Uh, something that I didn't realize, and in, in doing some research for uh, our discussion this morning, is that I, I totally missed that you were in the Sound of Music live. Uh, you were one of the sisters, <laughs> and
3: uh, that was and- my magnum opus. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> no, you know what? I I even to myself was rather unrecognizable. <laughs> Were you standing I next to Georgia you. Stitt,
1: you know? <laughs> what did you say? Standing next to Georgia Stitt, you know?
3: I was standing next to Otto McDonald, darling. <laughs> That's why nobody noticed me. <laughs> oh. No, I, ra- I played the rather punitive nun with the glasses. I don't, I think you'll remember that now. Huh? We that was such a gas. But it, it was some point about 24 hours before the the the, the airing that I realized that I started the song, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? And I realized that I had no way to access that note, the first note of the song, and it was on a track. So I thought, oh my, like, it never, I'd never had a problem with an rehearsal. It just happened because I, I didn't think about it until the night before. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, my God, what if I come in in the wrong key? But that didn't happen.
1: Uh, no. No.
4: You're standing So, next so I sort of said, "She climbs a tree." I kind of <laughs> did that. <laughs> well, that's what that's what the lady does in the movie, and she, and she was pre-recorded. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but that was so much fun because I was literally standing next to Audra. We were going out for the opening, and and uh, they were saying four seconds to lie there, three seconds to lie there. Like you were going up literally in a rocket ship, and we were the first oh ones God. to have done that and And it was just so much fun, I feel like all those people that we did that show with we we went we went out to war, like we were in Vietnam together or something and it but it was really fun uh and I love that people care about musicals on television
1: yes yeah that that was uh... That was quite the launching there of yeah. of what seems to be a, a renaissance in bringing musicals back to TV, and we're very lucky for that.
3: Nineteen uh, million people watched it, and that's not including the reairs and the. the I was uh, going to say twenty
1: three million, but I guess that, oh, okay. that includes the reairs and and DVRs right. and things like that. Uh, we talked about that a lot, and we had a handful of uh, folks come on and talk with us about Sound of Music live. Um, it was just an, an amazing thing, and I'm so glad that it was uh, – it put together well. I mean, you guys, from what we heard, you guys had a good amount of rehearsal and time on the set out at Grumman Studios on Long Island. And
3: uh, Well, and you know, s- Rob Ashford was amazing. He figured it all out. We rehearsed it as if it were a Broadway show, uh, and, you know, there were people uh, – that had never done any kind of musicals before and, and really seasoned veterans mixed up. And then we got out there and there were the Alps built in the middle of a sound stage, you know, you with know, <laughs> an old aircraft carrier place, right? They built the planes out there. Yeah. It was remarkable. I think what they've tried to do over the years now is kind of show the backs, Cause I think what would have been more interesting was to see how live it really was and how people were running across the football field to get to the next Mm-hmm. Shot, um, yeah. and I think the subsequent sh- live airings, they've kind of pulled back and done that. I don't know. If it's, if yeah, Greece that was- did
1: that. Greece, they yes. showed them in golf carts going from yeah. one st- one set to another in the commercial breaks and everything like that. I, and that's part of the excitement of um, uh, of a live live theatrical um, performance that you don't really see. You know, huge crossovers at, at Les Misérables where you not only have a Huge crossover, but you have a costume change during the crossover, and right. you're appearing back on stage 45 seconds later. Right. So, <laughs> you, I, I'm looking at your list of of uh, Broadway shows, and I think to myself, you have worked with some of the greats. Uh, I have. I mean, uh, it's you know you have you have uh, you wise guys, which. You get to work with Steven Sondheim and Sam Mendes, and you have songs. That was a group. For... Yeah, <laughs> songs for a new world with Jason Robert Brown, and then you also have um, City of Angels. Uh, I mean, what did you know at the moment? I mean, of course, when you work with Sondheim, but when you're working on Parade or Songs for a New World, I mean, Songs for a New World. Jason was like four years old, wasn't he?
3: He was twenty three. And I had worked at the WPA Theater before, which is on 23rd Street in the river, basically, which, you know, now Mm -hmm. it's got all that stuff over there. But back then it was nothing except (laughs) a few ladies with high heels coming home from (laughs) late nights. And I lived on the Upper East Side, so you can't get there from the Upper East Side unless you take four different modes of transportation. So my agent called me and said, and I'd done a show called Weird Romance there with Danny Burstyn. And Jonathan Adari and Ellen Green, that was a disaster. <laughs> and um, what well, wasn't a disaster. It was well-written, well, well written, but the show didn't do well. Yeah. Um, yeah, Anyway, so I get this call from my agent and said, they're interested in you, they are interested in you, <laughs> for the unknown song, trunk songs of an unknown com- 23-year-old composer. And I said, wow, this is great, guys. <laughs> um, and I think it paid $100 less than my unemployment. Oh, my God. So I went and I auditioned for them and they were so sweet. And the next day, Jason called me and said, I don't know if you can, I want to just see what your scope is in in terms of like doing comedy or something. Will you come to my house? I said, okay. So I went to his house, which looked like the apartment of a 23 year old unknown composer. And uh, he started playing me his songs. And I said, who are you? Like, yeah. what the heck? And he played this <laughs> song called Stars in the Moon for me. Oh, Whoa. Stars in the Moon. I said, when did you write that? And he said, well, when I was 19. And, and, you know, and Stars in the Moon is about a middle-aged yeah. woman you know, coming to terms with her unfortunate marriage. So I thought, well, this guy's got plugged into something. And then we all got in a room, you know, the first day of rehearsal. And it was just one of those magical things that everybody loved each other. We had so much fun. There'd be three people in the audience and there would be Andrew Lloyd Whipper, Stephen Sondheim, and Hal Prince. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we were, and, and after it was over, we were rinsing out our own pantyhose in, in like the sink. Um, and it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I still, you know, Jason's still one of my best friends and all the people that were in it. I just had lunch with Brooks Manskis and it's so amazing how well everyone has done since that. Just amazing. Yeah. Billy Porter, you know, <sighs> yes. who I had to sing after every single time he would change the molecular structure of the room. I would have to follow <laughs> that. But yeah, I don't know. And and Wise Guys is the same thing. I mean, um, American Beauty had just hit, literally was just hit the, uh, and this young guy named San Mendez was the guy. And we there we were down, you know, downtown. And with, you know, it the most phenomenal cast. Uh, Nathan Lane and Victor Garber and Brooks Mancus and Michael Hall and uh, Christopher Fitzgerald and Nancy Opal. It was amazing. Uh, so, you know, the success of a piece is very interesting. You know, uh, we used to make jokes about songs for New world. Like we would say, Oh, when the cast album comes out and everyone wants to buy it, you know, and it did, that's what happened. I still <laughs> have, you know, these. least, same age people come up to me with that record it's meant so much to them it's amazing
4: well actually I was at this event the other night called Broadway Stands Up for Freedom uh, 15th Annual Benefit Concert for the American Civil Liberties Union and the New York Civil Liberties Union and Uh uh, Jason was there and uh, some of his stuff was done and when he was announced that um, that show was mentioned and it still gets applause (laughs) Yeah. So it's that's definitely lasted.
3: Well, then of course I got to do his big, you know, first big show parade which was a beautiful piece which people didn't really get at the time but I think they're getting it now. And in the middle of the the run of that, he would call me and say, "Hey, come over to my house because he was going through a very difficult divorce and he wanted to put it down." Mm-hmm. Uh and he said, "Here, I'm going to write a show where the man's part goes one way and the the chronology, and the woman's part goes the other way, and I've written the the end and the beginning, so I want you to come sing it, so I would go and sing those songs with him, and then we put them down, um which now somehow have made their way to the internet, and people say it doesn't sound as good as the cast album, and I literally was like standing in his bathroom oh my god, <laughs> oh my god. this is before, this is before
2: the internet, really <laughs> anyway, so yeah. Getting- Getting back to Parade, I actually got to see you go on as Lucille, and I'd love to hear about that, what
3: happened. Uh, now, that first story. of all, this is uncanny, because the amount of people that have said that
2: to me, you see, it takes my breath away. I can't even speak. I remember a fairly full house when I was there, so I would not be surprised <laughs> if a lot of people saw you go on as Lucille.
3: So this is what happened. I had just had a baby. When we did, we were up in Toronto, uh, with parade before we came to New York, I was like seven months pregnant and Hal had a real problem. Hal Prince had a problem. He was like, I don't want you playing the mother of a dead child being pregnant. It makes me feel weird. I said, don't worry about it. It's I'm acting. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and then we came in and we opened and I had a small child and Hal called me on the phone one day and he said, Jess, we have a little problem. And I said, uh, "What?" He said, "We uh, until we get to the different contracts, because you, when you're on like when you're at the, in the Lincoln Center contract, it flips over to like a Broadway contract at a certain point. Lord, we Lord can't to afford to have,
0: yeah.
3: yeah, we can't afford to have uh, a standby. Could you just learn the part?" And I said, "How? I can't. I said I am uh, I'm already in a broad- new Broadway show, and I have a brand new baby, and I'm I can't even see straight." He said, "You're not going to go on. She's 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 as strong as a, an ox." <laughs>
4: <laughs> Famous last words.
3: <laughs> so we opened like days before Christmas, and the day before we opened, or maybe the night after we opened, I thought, "Let me just go trail her and just see what what she's doing, just so just in case." Well, the next day, I get the call at like noon, and Hal's like, "Isn't it swell, honey? It's swell, isn't it?" I said, "It's not swell." There's nothing swell about. It. I had had no rehearsal. All the all the props, everything, were dangling dangling from the rafters, so I couldn't even. You know, I don't know if you remember that show, but there's a big picnic basket scene. There's a scene where she's writing letters, and and you know all kinds of props. And you know we weren't this exactly the same size, so I had to wear all of her costumes. I don't remember it happening. I'm glad that you did.
2: Oh. <laughs> I remember I asked you about this years ago, and you mentioned during the This Is Not Over Yet scene, you had trouble with one prop. Could you tell that story? Yeah, because I I had to write a letter to the governor. This is, You know, and,
3: and I kept, there were lots of pens and things, but usually, you know, they glue those things down so they don't flop around when they move the props. So there was a huge desk with stationery, but it was all glued, so I kept trying to pick up gl- things that were glued oh, and I finally God. found the proper pen and the stationery, because I didn't have any rehearsal with any of the props or anything or anybody so you did all
2: of that with no rehearsal
3: that's amazing no rehearsal wow the it same is... thing happened to me when I did went into Les Miserables I was one of the first replacements I was doing cats across the street how about that and uh, <laughs> I would wa- I'd cats would come down and I'd go and be- I was able to watch the entire almost second act of Les Mis from the rafters. So I no. knew the second act, but I just only knew the first act from uh, just the script. And I hadn't met any of the cast. And uh, the, my first day of rehearsal, the stage manager said, do you think maybe go on tonight? Because she said, either you're going on tonight or I'm going on tonight. Oh, my God. And I went on. I don't remember that either. I think that when I die there'll be about uh, it'll be like four or five days early just because of all the shows that I <laughs> went on without oh, rehearsals God. for. <laughs> it just took one or two days off my life. <laughs> but you know what? It's the greatest I would never do it again, but it it, it was it created uh the ability to be fearless. I went to exactly. see Assassins the other night. Those guys had four days of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. It was amazing what they did in four days of rehearsal. 4
2: well, days
4: wow speaking of short rehearsals i i must commend you on the most happy fellow because i don't know if, if all you other guys saw the show but jessica played marie who is not the most sympathetic character in the in the show in fact if there's if i guess if there's a villain you would have to say it's her but i don't know uh, you can maybe you can tell us i don't know if it was your idea jessica or Casey nicola but all they did was add a a brief moment at the end of sort of realization and reconciliation where she realizes that she was wrong and it just changed the whole ending of the of the show because normally that character kind of just skulks off and is never seen mm-hmm. again but that it really it I mean it was a it was probably 15 seconds but it it just really made such a difference in that last scene
3: well you know I auditioned for it and I said to Casey I said can we and Casey was right there with me. Can we make this a, a story about someone who loves someone maybe too much? Because mm. that to me was, you know, that was a positive spin on that. And that's really what it was. It was about she didn't want the, her brother to go on because she loved him too much. It was not a healthy relationship. And uh, he was like, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he helped. he helped me with that. That well, was just you know, the thing about Casey is so amazing. He does. He's known for these fun and funny things, but boy, what he did in those that week of rehearsal with those people! I thought that was one of the best things I've ever been a part of. Yes, that production. Yeah, Laura Benanti and and Shuler and everybody was so wonderful.
4: Yes.
1: So uh, one of my aren't I lucky?
3: Yeah. You are. i
1: <laughs> looking at
2: no, how... <laughs> no, I wouldn't say lucky. I'd say you earned it and you've proven that you can do this. That's not luck. That's hard work. No, thank you. Thank you. you know, I appreciate that.
1: On the flip side of it, I mean, Parade, City of Angels, Chess, Cats, Oklahoma, uh, Dream, I mean, Man of No Importance, uh, Happy Fella. You didn't get to see these because you were in them. I mean, <laughs> no. we got to see these. I mean, and City of Angels is one of my most favorite shows, and I'm so sad we right. haven't seen it come back
3: yet. Why uh, not? I just said that to someone the other day. That why at least, at the least, do it at encore. But I think that's, that is in need of a revival. Absolutely, that is a great, I mean, beautifully crafted show.
1: Aside from aside from just having an amazing uh, book, an amazing music, an amazing cast, the band. The
3: orchestra was the horn section. It's it's a score. It's a great score. It's one of those shows that, you know, when you're in a show, you have to do something eight times a week. You know when it's good because it gets better. You know, Hmm. it's like Sunday. It's, you know, when I did Sunday in the Park with George, no one left the backstage area. Everyone sat in chairs and listened to the show and went on when they heard their cue. It wasn't anybody, you know, Tweeting or it was just you stayed in it because you wanted to. Mm.
0: Um,
3: and City of Angels is the same thing. It's so much fun to do. Uh, I know. Let's get, let's call someone. It's such a <laughs> yeah,
1: it it's such a big show. I wonder if it's if it's tar if it's hard to financially pull off City of Angels. But an encore certainly oh. should be able to do it.
3: Yeah, it would be fun with a big orchestra on stage to see that at an encore.
1: Oh, that'd be great. Maybe so, this
3: radio show will make a difference.
1: <laughs> well, talking <laughs> of radio shows, you have uh, a weekly radio show, radio, radio Deluxe, which airs in 60 cities around the United States and Canada. So, how can our listeners catch up with you on the radio show? Tell us about what Radio Deluxe is.
3: Well, I'll tell you, when you said, um, when we were doing research for this interview, I thought, oh, you mean when you have a radio show, you should do research? <laughs> we call it <laughs> we call it <laughs> swinging conversation. No real preparation. Um, <laughs> it's it's just really my husband and I, John Pizzarelli. Um, I sort of bring him, as you said before, a forty more forty second Street, more Broadway sensibility. He brings a, a jazz sensibility. We go in our corners and we pick out records and we we <laughs> talk. Um, and uh, for some reason, people listen to it. And uh, it's it's been it's really changed our live experience because when now when we go places people say, Hey how did that, you know, pot roast turn out and people feel like they really know it and, and it's nice. I, I'm sure you as you know, you know, re- pe- I think it's a good time for radio. People spend a lot of time at the computer, they spend a lot of time in their cars and you have you can go on Pandora if you want to, but it's nice to hear live people talking about real things and so uh it just took off and we can't kinda can't quit it. For, uh, up in Canada, you can find us online at uh, RadioDeluxe.com or JohnPizzarelli.com. There's a link to Radio Deluxe, and, uh, or just go and find the, the affiliates and find out when we're on at what time. I, I know I can always I go into auditions now and um, I can tell where people have country houses because uh, we're on in the Berkshires and we're on in the Hamptons, and we're also on uh, WNYC, but only on, online. But it's funny who listens.
1: Oh, that's great so uh, Jessica thank you so much for coming to visit with us on a Sunday morning Portraits of Joni is now available uh, or is out on July 28th which is just a few days away you can pre-order it right now at uh, Ghostlight Records and Chickaboom uh, you have the Birdland Jazz Club uh, show coming up you're going to perform selections from the album on August 8th through the 12th uh, yeah I just want to say that that's
3: actually my my husband has a record coming out uh, that it's Sinatra and Joe Beam in 50 years, and that's actually his gig, and I'm inside of it doing Joni stuff. So, just in oh. case, just to clarify that. So, yeah, well, my and my daughter is performing of it. It's a family affair. Yes.
1: <laughs> Excellent. So we'll have links to that in the show notes and links to all the other things that we've talked about today. Jessica, thank you so much for spending time with us on Broadway thank Radio. Would really appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Thanks. I met a
0: man. Without a dollar to his name Who had no traits of any value But his smile I met a man who had no year Nor claim to fame Who was content to let life pass him For a while And I was sure That all I ever wanted was a life Like the movie Star's left. But he kissed me right here And he said I'll give you stars and the moon And a soul to guide you And a promise I'll never go I'll give you hope to bring out All the life inside you And the strength that will help you grow I'll give you truth in a future That's twenty times better Than any Hollywood plot And I thought, you know I'd rather have a yacht.
1: With us this morning, we have a second special guest. Chris Harcum is with us. Chris is an award-winning actor, playwright, and producing director for Elephant Run District. Since moving to New York City in 2002, over 20 of his works have been seen on New York City stages. His full-length plays include Martin Denton, Martin Denton so good you had to say it twice. Rabbit, <laughs> Rabbit Island, Milk and Shelter, The Devil and Mrs. Spelvin. Chris co-adapted co-ad- and played the title role in a modern version of Moliere's The Hypochondriac, and he has performed in nearly 200 projects as an actor. As a solo performer, he helped uh, create and perform the American Gun Show, some kind of Pink Breakfast, Gotham Standards. What's Anna Hoinda? Anna uh- Anhedonia. Anhedonia. road <laughs> The opposite and, of hedonism. Oh, excellent!
5: <laughs> excellent. <laughs> it, was, it was my blue song of a show.
1: So, Chris, thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us. I really appreciate you joining us.
5: I, I'm really glad you you reached out to me. Thank you so much.
1: So, um, before we jump further into this, uh, uh, we sort of have a theme going this morning, uh, and I'm hoping that this theme will stop right now. Is that uh, I was talking to Chris, and Chris, just like Jessica Molaski, was hit by a car. While he was a pedestrian. So Chris, we're yes. so glad you're here with us.
5: <laughs> Thank you, me you're, too.
1: You're here with us in that you were riding a city bike on eighth Avenue and got hit by a guy who blew a red light.
5: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: And you're okay and you're I am, well, yes. Your elbow is on the mend?
5: Yes, I, I scraped my elbow and, and my, my left ankle is a little tight, but you know, I can walk on stage and I put a band-aid over the and actually, I kind of turned it into a moment because there's a line in the show where I say the audience might be aware of the actors throughout the performance. And I used to throw it to my um, to Marisol, who's on stage with me. Uh, but instead, I hold up my elbow and look at the Band-Aid so everybody knows that that's on purpose.
1: So, Chris, you're talking about Martin Denton, Martin Denton, which I'm sad to say is going to be doing its last performance today at 2 o'clock. Uh, but tell us, Martin Denton, Martin Denton, what is it, how did it come about, and uh, give us the lowdown on it, and maybe uh, since it's wrapping up at 2 o'clock today, is there any chance we'll see it
5: again? Uh, wow. Okay. So, uh, you know, Martin Denton was uh, just an amazing person who did a lot for Indian downtown theater. He started this website uh, basically towards the end of 96 called Martin's Guide to New York Theater, and... A few months later, it turned into nytheater.com. And he edited and reviewed over 10,000 reviews in his time between 97 and 2014 on that site. He published 187 plays and 16 books, 1,347 online. He made uh, over 2,000 blog posts and 459 podcasts. He was just really productive during that time. He gave like... I think no one else who claims to love the theater really did. He loved the theater. And so and so when he moved out of the city and kind of took a step back, you know, it for me I felt like there was a big hole that was kind of put into things there. And when my wife, Amy, and I went down to to have dinner with Martin and his mother, Rochelle, last summer, he started telling me these stories that I didn't know. And I had known about him since 2003 and then actually knew him personally since 2006. And I thought, if I don't know these stories, there are other people who certainly owe a big debt of gratitude to him should know these stories. And then because indie theater decades basically happen every um, – Three years, let's say, two to three years, a whole generation flips over. It's faster than dog years. It really is. And, and so there's this whole wave of people who don't know about him at all. And so I felt like that was sort of an injustice that needed to be rectified. So uh, I had done a couple of projects at the Metropolitan Playhouse called Alphabet City, where you go out and you interview people who live or work in the East Village, and then you create a 20-minute monologue as that person. So I went and I interviewed Martin several times. That became about 400 pages of transcripts. Uh, then that got morphed into a script that I, I wrote um, Martin checked the first draft for accuracy and, you know, when you're telling different stories, you say things out of order and there's this and that. And so me not having actually lived his life, putting those things in order was quite a task. And I tried to what I tried to do is basically do like one big arc of his life from beginning to where we are at this show, which is uh, set in October of 2014 when they first moved out of the city. Uh, because I thought like with all of the facts and all of the figures and all of the people and all of the moments and all of the things that you're going to be seeing and Marisol and I, uh, she plays like close to 30 characters. I do, I don't know, eight or ten um, with all of that happening, if this was going back and forth in time, people would just be lost. So I wanted to do one big arc. So getting his input and and his uh, fact-checking on things, like uh, this happened at this place, this person said that, that sort of thing, really kind of helped the script take a, take things up to a new level. Um, and then I layered in a, an element of, of sort of an homage to Our Town because he grew his love for theater because his father would play show tunes on the piano at night and then read things, not normal kid things, but things like Our Town, and he'd play all the parts. And then the first show that Martin was invited to uh, when he was starting up NY Theater was actually a production of Our Town at the Producers Club. So I thought that there was this sort of nice resonance kind of flowing through it. And then the idea of life being precious – Uh, Because he really started this when his father died suddenly of a heart attack uh, at age 61. So, um, you know, we wanted to reinforce that because theater is very ephemeral. It's here and then it's gone. Uh, Lots of people I know were doing theater and were big shots a few years ago and they're gone. And so this idea of not being able to really hold on, doing what you can to capture moments or to collect these things for yourself – because at the end of the day, um, you know, I talk about this at the end of, of the show, that there's no retirement plan in the theater, really. Uh, you know, I, I, you know some people have certain careers do, but but really it's you either decide to stop or you're forced to stop. And then what do you have left? You have a proper program and maybe some reviews and pictures and our costume piece, and that's it. So, you know, having this... Uh, This piece, talk about that, about this idea of things being ephemeral and going away was kind of important to me. And that's really sort of the heart of the piece. And so as we were talking about the bike accident, that was sort of, uh, I think, life resonating with the themes of the show and letting me know that, yes, actually, it's true. Life is precious, because that could have been my number, but it wasn't.
1: So uh, you are the producing director for Elephant Run District. What is Elephant Run District, and how did that name come about?
5: Well, Elephant Run District is the indie film and theater company that my wife and I run together, and the name of the company comes from How We Met, which was back in February of 2010, and this was the last time... The actual last time that Ringling Brothers ran their elephants because the only way they would get them into Manhattan was through the Queen's Midtown Tunnel across 34th Street. And so they would do this about midnight. People would find out about it and then people would go there and they would cheer and they'd be really happy about this. And other people would protest and scream about it. And you had sirens blaring and rain was going and stilt walkers and clowns and all of this stuff all happening all at the same time. It was this great mix of stuff happening all at once and that's how we met at that Uh, that event because I had a ticket to see Sondheim on Sondheim for his big birthday bash, uh, his 80th birthday bash that night. But a friend asked me to do a play reading that night instead. So I gave up my ticket. Well, this was with a theater company where Amy used to go every single Monday to all the play readings, but she got a ticket to Sondheim on Sondheim. So there was this confluence of events that happened, and this was the last time that Ringling Brothers did this because MSG refurbished the building and shrank the door so the elephants couldn't go in there. Um, so, so this was something sort of magical. So the first time we produced a show together, we were asked what the name of our company, company was, and we came up with Elephant Run District. <laughs> and so, so, so the work we do, we feel, um, sort of exemplifies that experience and, you know, different pe- people will get different things out of it, but we want it to be something that creates a memory that you won't forget.
1: So uh, I, I became very interested in the the play Martin Denton, Martin Denton, through your, uh, your very personal Facebook posts that you have exposed to the general public and uh, talking about what it was like to um, – to bring this to the stage. And then during the production, you know, kind of, um, you know, who's coming that night and how the shows went and things like that. What did you, uh, have you always been, uh, somebody who would more or less, you're blogging through Facebook. Have you blogged about all of your shows in the past and, and shared, you know, so much detail that we, that audiences don't typically see about a show?
5: <laughs> well no actually and and I think I think you you get the mindset that what you want to do is put out the idea that the show is a hit that people love it people are coming to it and and it, everything you're doing is great and and I think there's a certain amount of validity to that but I think I've also this is just a very personal piece for me I went through a lot. It was, it was a lot of hard work to make this happen and there were a lot of ways in which it might not have happened. It was just a really tough process. So just even getting to opening night was like sticking my flag in the ground and claiming victory. So then from there, I just wanted people to know because, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't care if you don't see the show because of me. You can hate me. You can not know who I am. You can never care about what I do. I don't care. But Martin Denton is so important – Not just to me, but to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So to me, having uh, connections to all these people that I know owe a huge debt of gratitude to Martin. I just wanted them to know what's happening with this show and why it's important to me and I think to everyone else and to just reinforce that. So um, the next day, it really kind of started because we we had a great opening night. And then the second night we, we kind of we really dropped in seats. It's you know, Friday nights are kind of difficult if you're doing a seven o'clock show. People are rushing from work and crazed and you know, they need a drink or a big cookie or whatever they do at the end of a work week to, to then, you know, about nine o'clock you're ready to get get going again, you know. Um, especially with the heat and the MTA being nobody's friend at this point. Um I I, I can't begin to tell ya. We were almost late for our show last night. Thank you, MTA. But um You know, I got up Saturday morning and I knew I had three reviewers coming to the show and I think we had zero people with pre-sales. We had zero pre-sales. So I just started writing about how it was going to be like a 90-minute audition for drama school in which they may or may take one person or not. Um, And I just had this really bad feeling about that. And I just – and I felt like, you know – I, I didn't know how people would take this show. Uh, I mean I knew people who love Martin wouldn't love the show or they might have a weird feeling about it because it's this weird thing of I, – I, one thing people keep saying over and over is, oh my god, all this happened 20 years ago and I was there. Or I was at this place, or even uh, two nights ago, Maggie Sino, who did Ascending Bonnelly in the Crane Theater where we're doing this show, gets mentioned in the show, and she said she remembered vividly the moment when she was performing one performance and handed a bag to Martin Denton and saw his face. So there's this sort of weird sort of figure eight thing that's happening for certain people and time with this show. And to me, I felt like it was just important. Plus, I mean, basically what I was doing, is sharing with the world what I write in my journal by hand in a composition book and you know I just thought yeah, I might as well kill two birds with one stone and let people know what's going on in my head because I, I know a lot of people, we know each other but we're so busy, you either working or you're doing shows or you're rehearsing shows or you're zipping to something else and that sort of thing so there's a lot of people who know me but don't know my process and don't know what went into this and people who I, I think some people may have the impression that Martin just told me some stories. It was all in one shot i just I just basically transcribed that and here 's the show. It was so easy to put it together and it really wasn 't If I put in less than three hundred and fifty hours on the script i 'd be amazed um, you know and then you've got close to another. 80, hundred hours for rehearsal plus another 40 on my own running the show just to get the lines in my head. And it's not like I wrote the show. So it was easier to memorize. I had to write all the drafts. So, you know, you have to work really hard. And, and this show is all about fact. I'm throwing out names and facts and figures, and I have a great memory for material, but I have a poor memory for names. So it's just this very strange thing. And so for me, um, it was a very, very, um, arduous kind of athletic, Uh, journey as far as putting the show together we do it's approximately 95 minutes straight i'm on stage the whole time marisol's on stage the whole time and we're working the whole time uh we don't have moments where we get to sit back and listen to somebody else monologize or you know one of us is doing everything the whole time um, or doing it in combination with one another so i just wanted people to know what it was all about uh, and that success i think in a lot of people's mind success is you get rave reviews in all your reviews well that never happens that never happens go look up any mark rylance show and mark rylance is the top of the tops right but you know you can look at any show and find somebody t- you know taking a big old stinky thing on it and saying <laughs> it's you know a one star show when it's a five star show i mean who's doing better work than that you know, so, so to, to just kind of say, like, this is the full experience I'm having. It is a full ride. There are ups, there are downs, there are great nights, there are bad nights. There are great nights where something bad happens. There are bad nights where something great happens. And that's just the experience of live theater that I, you know, I think we, and I think the other thing too is that we've moved into an age where people go to an experience to have the experience other people are having. And that's just insane to me. I think you need to go and have your own experience and to know that what I'm going through isn't the experience you would have putting up a show. And I think that that's just really important for everybody to kind of take a step back and and look at.
1: Chris, you you have this show that is – you know at the crane and is admittedly an off-off Broadway not really a mainstream show about somebody who focused on off-off Broadway um and you got the New York Times to come review it yeah what was what was that like Elizabeth Vincentelli reviewed it for the Times
5: yes yes um you know it's great i mean i feel like it's it's you know here we are we're doing the show we haven't i haven't tallied up exactly what we spent on it uh, outside of what we would might pay for rental. We're doing a split with the crane. We're co-producing it with horse trade, uh, frigid New York at horse trade is the actual title of the group. Uh, so we have a certain sort of, uh, they, they get a split of the door. And then after we reach a certain number, they get 50% of it. So we'll see where all that falls. I'm assuming we're not going to make the money back that we spent on it. And, you know, it's, we it's a it's a five thousand six thousand dollars production outside of that for my wife and me. Um, my wife actually directed this as well, so it's a it's a mom and pop show. It's you know a labor of love. It really is and and with love, love isn't always pure and easy and happy and all that good stuff there's there's a lot behind it. Um, but I think as far as getting the New York Times, getting Michael Summers from The Village Voice to come to the show, getting a bunch of other people to to see the show is really amazing. I think there's a certain curiosity factor for reviewers and for for people like what was it like? Cuz I know, you know, reviewers go to the show, they see other reviewers. And, you know, it's it's like well, what what would somebody be saying about somebody's life? Is it like mine or not? So there's a certain curiosity factor that I think made this of note to people. I think what he did is certainly important as far as the history of it and that sort of thing. As far as me, eh you know I'm kind of nobody and and that's okay. Uh, I work at the level I work at, uh, but but you know to have the times come and review it is is a big badge of honor. I mean, it says that you're you're doing something that is noteworthy. and so and so that's a great thing. Would I have liked for them to? uh, enjoyed the more, the show more or to talk more about what I did in the show. Yes. would I like for the show to suddenly sell out because the New York times made it a critics pick. Yes. But that, that didn't happen. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, you know, and, and, and that's fine. And this show isn't for everybody. I mean, it's for people who love the theater. I mean, the show is a love letter. It's about love. It's about somebody's love and pouring all that love into something. Um, and, and and what he got out of it was being able to give that love again and again. And I th- and I think that that resonates with people. One woman saw the show last week who wasn't in the theater. And uh, when she was asked what she thought the show was about, she said it's because life is pre- – and before she could finish saying the word precious, she burst into tears. It meant something to her. So I think on that level, it certainly gets people. Um, but I think for some people, uh, you know, I mean some people – Love musicals. Some people love devised work. Some people love operas, and not everybody loves everything. But they love things that go under this umbrella of theater. So, you know, it's it's always a it's a mixed blessing, and and you know, you just kind of have to embrace it. You have, if if you know, you have to embrace all the reviews. I did a show in Edinburgh a few years ago called The American Gun Show, and totally divided the critics. Uh, my press person said we got more reviews than any other show she was representing that year, and we got two, 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 three, two, four, and two five-star reviews. So you know, it's a full experience, and 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 you know, I don't want to have to just do the work that I think is just going to make everybody happy because that's impossible. I would be insane, and I would stop doing it right away.
1: Especially with uh, limited run shows, um, we'd like to talk to you not about. This show that you're doing right now, especially since it ends today, but what's coming in the future? What do you have next up?
5: That's always a great question. And I always get to this point where I I have some ideas in my head, but I'm not I'm not um, um, you know, I'm not one of those people who has sort of the next six projects laid out. I have some ideas. I, I usually have to transition out of a project and really get a sense of what that was, kind of kick the ground a little sure. bit. get a sense of what I want to do, what's happening in the world, you know, wet my finger, feel what's happening in the wind and, and see where I want to go from there. Um, you know, if you talked to me on this date last year, I wouldn't begin to be able to tell you that I was going to be doing a show about Martin Denton. Um, and that I would be doing all of these things. Um, I, I was working at that point on a, a web series, uh, called speech makers that was based on my, um, Getting involved with the Toastmasters club because uh, I I find public speaking terrifying and horrible and (laughs) I'm an introvert. And so doing any of this is just really a a massive surprise to me every single time. Um, But what what I loved about Toastmasters is that it was for everyone. No matter your age, no matter where you come from, no matter how much money you make, whatever you are, you are welcome and you get up there to make yourself better. And there's something about that which I find incredible. So I was working on this web series and then I just kind of put that on pause because this this happened. So so I may go back to that. Uh, I have an idea for a farce that that uh, will deal with some historical events that happened recently Um not particularly about the last big election directly, but possibly indirectly. And there are a few other things, but I I think, you know, I should also plug that my theater company has a play podcast series called the Heard Podcast, where we record plays in front of a live audience and then post those up on our website. Um, But other than that, it's just a matter of just kind of really digging down and, and seeing where I am and what I really am curious about because each project I try to approach differently. I, I th- There may be a Chris Harkham style, but I'm not sure what it is uh, because I feel like each piece, even when I did solo shows, each one was kind of a different style or a different genre. So I really try to mix it up. I guess it comes from my being an actor and one of the great things about being an actor is that you get to do different things and be different people and do different types of things. And, you know, I like to challenge myself. So if I'm just doing the same thing over again, it's boring and I'm not going to really bring myself to it. So um, the short answer, I guess, is therapy. That's what I'm going to be doing
1: next. <laughs> so... Um... <laughs> At the top, of, at the top of our interview here, I talked about uh, similarities, and that you, you and Jessica both had both had accidents. I didn't realize that you have another similarity: that uh, your wife was the director of the show. Of course, uh, Jessica works with John Pizzarelli, her husband, yes. on yes. lots of projects, and you're working with your wife on uh, on Elephant Run District as well. So. Um, Uh, You know, what is that like for you with uh, the ability to um, to work in both of your passions uh, side by side with your wife?
5: It's it's you know, people say living the dream a lot. And, (laughs) you know, it's kind of a meaningless term to me for the most part. But there are times when we're in rehearsal and and it is this is this is our this is our thing. This is what we do. She knows me better than anybody else. She knows, you know, the nuances of what I do. She understands where I'm headed with things without me having to explain it. And, and, and that is great. Um, it's difficult sometimes because we produce and create this work together. So, you know, there are times where you have to really decide, okay, it's time to stop. We can't keep producing the show after rehearsal. It's 1130 or midnight and we're in our living room. It's time to just Mm -hmm. stop. Um, so that's, that's a really important thing. And it's, it's the kind of thing where we, we did have to learn to early, early on to, to turn that off. We used to, uh, talk about a show on the train ride home and then stop at a certain, station and then go out for coffee if we we're going to have a production meeting. So we weren't just doing all of that in our apartment the, the whole time. So, I mean, there is that sort of, that sort of, uh, aspect to it. When we work on projects for other people, sometimes she'll direct things and I'll get cast in it, um. You know, that that happens, but I'm not treated any more special than anyone else. In fact, usually the first rehearsal, she'll give the toughest note to me in front of everybody. So everybody knows I'm not getting special treatment. Um, So it's, it's sort of important for us to be professional and to not ever make anyone feel like they're in the middle of a marriage when they're working with us, that we are. You know, we could just be as easily not be in a relationship and be working together, but it just brings this other aspect to it in that we are doing what we we love in the way that we love to do it. Um, So so it's it's great. And and again, it's it's a it's a mixed thing. But I feel like, you know, we are now into, I think, our eighth project working together. Um, This is like the sixth time that I've been the playwright and or. Uh, performer in uh, an original piece that she's directed so we're you know we're finding different ways of of, of getting to that and and to um, really have an idea it's tricky sometimes i think because I, I i start talking about things and she starts coming up with production ideas and that sort of thing and then something gets thrown away or something changes early on so it's there's also figuring out the right moment for us to begin collaborate on collaborating on something especially when I'm writing it um, because then then we kind of get on the right track together. And once we do that, it really is a, a real joy to be doing this together. Well,
1: Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio and talking about uh, your projects and Martin Denton, Martin Denton, which uh, wraps up today at 2 p.m. Um, please let us know what else is coming up for you, and we'll talk with you soon.
5: Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate you guys having me, and I, and I wish you the best. Thank you.
1: Listeners can uh, catch up with Chris on Twitter and Facebook. We'll have links to stuff uh, for Chris and Elephant Run District in the show notes at broadwayradio.com.
0: I met a man who lived his life out on the road, who left a wife and kids in Portland on a whim. Always showed who asked if I could spare a week to ride with him. And I was sure that all I ever wanted was a life that was scripted and planned. And he said, But you don't understand. I'll give you stars and the moon and the open highway And a river beneath your feet I'll give you days full of dreams if you travel my way In a summer you can't repeat I'll give you nights full of passion and days of adventure No strings, just warm summer rain And I thought, you know, I'd rather have champagne
1: all right, Michael, so you saw two things this week. Uh, you saw Broadway Stands Up for Freedom, which was a concert, and you also saw Anything Goes on Staten Island uh, by In the Wings Productions. So uh, yes. tell us about them.
4: Well, Broadway Stands Up for Freedom, uh, which I saw on July 17th, was the 15th annual benefit concert for the American Civil Liberties and the New York Civil Liberties Union. And so uh, obviously they've been doing them for a while, but this was the first one that I went to. And apparently this one was very special in terms of the fact that on this occasion, all of the songs presented were new and were written specifically for this occasion by some really great people. Uh, This is the list, uh, a partial list of the, uh, participants, the talent on stage, and the songwriters. Susan Blackwell hosted the event. Uh, then we had uh, Gavin Creel and Taylor Trench from Hello, Dolly! Uh, and uh, Celia Keenan-Bolger uh, was instrumental in putting the evening together. Uh, so I, I just definitely want to give a nod to her. But then we had people like Brooks Ishmanskis, Jenny Barber, Kellen Blair, Andrea Burns, the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, Clinton Curtis, uh, Josh Greenblatt, Michael Friedman, Christopher Jackson, uh, Kate Kerrigan, Joe Kenosian, Andrew Kober, Brian Loudermilk, Lindsay Mendez, Zach Prince, Georgia Stitt, Stu, uh, t- uh, Taylor Trent I mentioned, Nathan Tyson, Brandon Uranowitz, and Adrian Warren. And this was a really, really amazing evening because several of the songs... Um, they sound like they're really keepers. I, um, I'm sure they must have recorded this evening for the archives, and it would be interesting to um, – I certainly hope we hear a lot of this material again. And uh, and given the names that I just mentioned, the, the performances were, were really, really wonderful. This was at the Skirball Center at NYU, which is a, a great space to begin with. And um, another highlight of the evening was that they presented – The Freedom Award to Harry Belafonte, um, the legendary Harry Belafonte, he was scheduled to be present. Apparently he – the story was that he was getting dressed to come to the event and he wasn't feeling that well and thought he should stay home because he is quite aged and hasn't been in the best of health. But what they did was – you know, with the wonders of modern technology, they actually put they got him on cell phone <laughs> and held the cell phone up to the mic uh so that he was able to speak to the audience and give his acceptance speech that way and that was really really quite a moment um so i'm re- really glad I went to that and i'm and I'm happy also that I went on a night that was devoted so specifically to new material uh, and then the other thing I saw. Um, this week, just last night, was an in-the-wings production of Anything Goes at the Snug Harbor Cultural Center on Staten Island. Uh, this was a really um, very impressive production in several ways. Uh, the very professional in several ways, the orchestra uh, conducted by Michael Pinto, a uh, 10-piece orchestra in an actual pit, um, was really excellent. And the costumes were very, very nice. Uh, and the set, uh, such as it was... Actually, the lighting was the only aspect of the per- physical production that seemed less than professional. But they're dealing with a lot of limitations there. Um, and the cast, um, especially headed by uh, Tanya Glassman as Reno Sweeney and Billy K- Piscopo. Excuse me, Billy Piscopo. Uh, I don't think any relation to Joe, but, <laughs> but uh, they really had excellent voices, and they seemed very, very professional. And the very extremely large cast, um, huge chorus, uh, including excellent tap dancers, um, and, and especially including young male tap dancers, which I don't know, when we used to do community theater shows back on Staten Island back in the day, that was one thing that was in the extremely short supply if, if it even existed. So I don't know if, um, uh, young guys are, are studying tap more nowadays. I think that'd be great because I think it's a wonderful art form. Uh, but I was really glad I was there. And, and, aside from everything else, one amazing reason to be there is the venue, the, um, the Snug Harbor Cultural Center, originally called Sailor Snug Harbor, uh, which consists of 26 Greek Revival Beaux-Arts, Italianate, and Victorian-style buildings that were built in the early 1800s. The complex opened completely in 1833, and the, uh, the building in which I saw Anything Goes perform was called the Music Hall, which, uh, which again, opened in 1833. We're talking almost 60 years before Carnegie Hall, uh, and you know it's not completely renovated by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's renovated and in a good enough condition that they can do shows there. So. Um, really historic place to be and to see one of the classic shows, anything goes. It was performed in what I consider the inferior uh, adaptation that was first done uh, by Lincoln center theater at the Beaumont with Patti Lapone. Um, but, the songs are still the songs, and uh, a lot of the plot is still the same, and some really funny jokes and situations in in this classic classic show, uh, originally written by um, Guy Bolton, P.G. Woodhouse, Howard Lindsay, and Russell Crouse uh, wrote the original book and new book by Timothy Krauss and John Weidman. Um, so that's – I'm really glad I went. They do have another weekend left uh, at Snug Harbor Cultural Center. If you can get to Staten Island, it's not too far from the ferry. You have to – once you get there, you'd have to get a cab, but it wouldn't be very expensive. Uh, So I I recommend looking into it if there's any way you can – think you can figure out the travel stuff.
1: So you were talking about uh, Billy Piscopo? Yes. And uh, I know Billy from – Way back. Really? From way, way back. I almost gonna say, I think that Billy was born and raised on Staten Island. Yeah. Uh, I and, uh, and I saw him do Tommy in Tommy in Red Bank, New Jersey when he was like 17 or 18.
4: Oh wow. well, based on anything goes, he really has the voice for for just about anything he'd want to do he really yeah I mean back then he had that voice
1: you oh know, he had he was hitting, he was hitting those notes and and uh, had the acting chops as well, so uh, he's an amazing talent and uh any chance to see Billy Piscopo, you should do that
4: yeah. Oh, small world! You know, here you know, I told James I was going to review this show, and never dreaming you'd know anyone in it. But uh, small theater theater world, right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Absolutely. So, Jenna, you got over to uh, Signature to see Spoon River, which is part of this uh, Soul Pepper uh, on Forty Second Street that we talked about a little bit about a few weeks ago. Uh, so, we talked about Soul Pepper. And so, tell
2: me, what do you think of Spoon River? Uh, Spoon River is a really lovely piece. It's based on uh, Edgar Lee Master's collection of poems, Spoon River Anthology. And instead of just setting all the poems to music, which was what I was expecting, uh, Toronto's Soul Pepper Theatre was part of their residency at the Signature Complex. Uh, The artistic director, Arbert Schultz and Mike Ross, adapted the poems as monologues. Some of them became songs, but they also added new songs and new stories and connected the characters together to make a much more dramatic framework. And that we start to see a really clear patchwork quilt of a community. And I think it's more evident on the stage than it is on the page. They do a really lovely job. Very short poems. It's not like someone stands there reciting in blank verse. It almost feels like a conversation with the audience. And the entire piece begins with the audience walking through a maze to the stage. And there is a woman in a coffin as we first walk into the theater, with staff saying, Very sorry for your loss. Thank you for coming. We're so sorry. And it's almost interactive. And then we walk onto the stage through a graveyard, and then we're led to our seats. After walking through this funeral parlor and a cemetery, we can finally sit down. So it's already a very immersive experience. And then one by one, these spirits emerge from the stage and tell us about their lives and, in some cases, their deaths. And it's a lovely way of just seeing individuals, seeing them as a community. The music is a lot of bluegrass. It's up-tempo. There's not a lot that's really down and depressing. For a story that's set in a cemetery, it's surprisingly uplifting and funny and very emotional. And Eventually, the lady who was in the box when we first walked in emerges And it's very much like Our Town with Emily celebrating her life as she's simultaneously grieving for everything she didn't get to do. And I'm wondering how much Our Town influenced the way the structure of the show was shaped, of people missing their lives, uh, celebrating their lives, acknowledging the loss of life as they cheer on what they had and what we as an audience still have and still can do. And it's very Thornton Wilder-esque by the end as they're reminding the audience, we're gone, but you are not. You can still do all the things we can't. And it's a very uplifting, life-affirming celebration and a fun, tight 90-minute musical experience. I really recommend it. Uh, The cast is wonderful. It's a fairly large cast. Everyone plays multiple roles and they all work very well as a unit um, I'm trying, I'll have to look here to see the names of the uh Ken Mackenzie did the set and the lighting. He deserves major props for doing do the kids still say props these days deserves a lot of cheer for uh, doing a really beautiful set. very simple with uh, uh, like I said, the immersive experience of walking through the funeral parlor into the cemetery. very clever. Um, Erica Connor's costumes are terrific. The characters have to change and become, the actors have to change regularly and become different characters. They do that beautifully. And, um, uh, the direction is also really nice. There are several scenes of couples buried side by side. They simply stand against a board and have two rectangular lights shown on them to indicate that they are in coffins side by side. And very simple, very effective, and they can deliver their song or their monologue from that very simple position, but we immediately get it. It's beautifully done and not very expensive evening at the theater, something appropriate for families, I would say 12 and up. But if your kids are ready for Our Town, they can certainly enjoy this and they may enjoy this more because it's shorter and it's got really good, fun, bluegrass music. So a really nice experience.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. And uh, and we'll have a link to all that information in the show notes. The uh, Spoon River website's got some uh, videos and uh, music you can listen to so you can kind of get a feel for it as well. Jenna, um, we yes. talked a little bit about Assassins in the previous episodes Uh, But you got a chance to see it. Uh, This was at the off-center at Encores. So uh, tell us, what was your take on Assassins?
2: Uh, Quite enjoyed. I'm very, very glad Encores decided to do the show. Uh, I agree with with Michael and with Peter in a lot of what they said last week, so there's not much I can add to that. Um, I completely agree with Peter about the final scene and how powerful it is and that we as a country had to catch up to that moment. It's still hard to watch uh, 50 years later. It's such a powerful moment. Uh, one thing I disagreed with Michael about, though, he said he felt it was staged enough. And I really wish Ann Kaufman and the cast had had more time to rehearse. I was lucky enough to see the show twice. And I went on Friday night and then on Saturday night. And the difference 24 hours made was staggering. On Friday night, everything felt incredibly tentative. And it felt like the actors were holding back a lot. And I could hear people coughing in the audience. There were playbills rustling. People were getting stepping up and walking out to use the bathroom. I mean, they were not being held in their seats by this incredibly intense, powerful show, which shocked me. It's such strong material. I was really stunned that it wasn't landing with the audience. And then I came back again Saturday night. And it was a completely different show. All of that intensity was there. It was very powerful. It was really strong. And I was sad that that was almost at the end of the run. There was only one more performance after Saturday night. I really wish the cast and and director Ann Kaufman and the music director and everyone else involved had had more time because it felt like they needed just that 24 hours to make it stick. And I I really hope the... uh, I hope they can figure out some way. I know there are equity rules about how much rehearsal time they're allowed to have. And I hope they can find some way to work around that because this is such a powerful, intense show. And if I had only seen it on Friday night, I'd just be complaining, saying they clearly didn't get it. It didn't work. Um, I will say I disagreed with some of Anne Kaufman's directorial choices. She felt some of her staging felt tentative. Some of it felt like it was a replica of the 2004 production. Uh, but I think with more rehearsal time, they could have had something a lot stronger that would not have had the Friday night audiences rustling their playbills and coughing and moving around a bit. So my call to action for encores, please, can there be some way to fig- to have more rehearsal time for the cast? Because there there was no reason why the Friday night audience should have been... Uh, distracted, should not have felt glued to their seats. Uh, this is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful musicals ever written. Uh, listening last week to Peter and Michael talking about the 1991 production, I, mean, I was a kid when that was out, but I remember when I got the uh, the cast recording, must have been around, what, 95 or so, and just how powerful that was, just listening to the original cast recording. And finding that video of Victor Garber at the uh, Sondheim Celebration at Carnegie Hall, just singing the Ballad of Booth. This is arguably one of the most powerful musicals ever written. And it needs to be rehearsed and rehearsed. It needs to be pitch perfect. And I think with more rehearsal time, this could have been a really magnificent experience. By Saturday night, it was. It was a lot closer to what it could have been. So I really hope Encores will find another way to get more rehearsal time for the uh, for these very limited runs.
1: So, um, uh, I, I didn't see the, I didn't see uh, Assassins, but I can. I sort of remember back in the beginning of Encores when they held books and they were less rehearsed. Yes, it, it might have been along those same lines. Uh, and we have to see if uh, Encores Off Center uh, goes through the same sort of um, process that the main uh, Encores, the Encores uh, series has gone through. And maybe it's a union rule. Maybe it was just that they yes. the beginning of the summer. But uh, will you be seeing the next two, the Bubbly Black I, Girl? And
2: I hope so. I don't have tickets yet, but I would absolutely love to see them. Uh, I'm very excited to see them. So, so, yes, if I can get tickets
1: we 'll have to see if they have more rehearsal <laughs> okay.
2: I hope so and i I do believe it is a union agreement it, it, for these concerts so that it's a special equity deal, so it 's not that i 'm claiming you know they were they should have gotten their act together sooner. I would never suggest that. I believe it is a union rule about how much rehearsal time is allowed for a concert performance. I will also say during another national anthem everyone was on book. And Another National Anthem is an amazing piece of music and lyrics. Uh, the way it brings together all of the characters, and it's, it's very precise. It is an incredibly precise song. And to have people looking down at their books as they're yelling, no man, we're never going to get our prize. No one listens, are they? Never. It's You can't miss a single beat. You can't be off. But you also need to be... They need to be engaged with the audience, with each other. And I was watching them reading their music and it's a very complex song. It's a difficult song to pull together, but you lose that power if they're reading from their music rather than engaging with each other, rather than yelling at the, uh, sorry, the balladeer in that scene. And again, that's a moment that was not nearly as strong as it could have been if they were off book, if they didn't have these props in their hands. And and I don't know, again, if that's a union rule. I remember reading that they had to be on book for a certain amount of the show because it's technically a reading, not a full-fledged staging, and that for these shows, they must have the book at a certain point to indicate to the audience, no, you are not seeing a full production. You are seeing a reading, technically
3: seeing Uh... a reading.
2: And so I don't know why they would choose that moment to all be on book. Maybe they needed to be on book for that moment because it is so complex and precise. But that's such an emotionally powerful moment that to have them on book, I thought, drained some of the power. So it's sort of a catch twenty two. By equity rules, they need to have script in hand, but that breaks up the that uh, breaks the intensity of the scene if they do.
1: So Peter is out of town this week, um, but he'll be returning next week. And next week, Michael will be out of town. So uh, we will uh, catch up with trivia uh, answers next week with Peter. Uh, Michael, what are you doing out of town next week?
4: Oh, just the Jersey Shore. Nothing theater related as far as I know. But who who knows? (laughs) You'll you'll find something.
2: (laughs) The Jersey Shore is pure theater. Come on.
4: (laughs) Of a different type. Yeah. Of a very
2: different type.
4: Which can tell us
2: all about the dramatic breakups you've watched.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which town in the Jersey Shore do you like the best?
4: Well, I'm going to Bradley Beach, which is right next to Asbury Park, so Uh, that's a yeah.
1: And uh, Jersey Shore has shown up on many uh, Broadway stage. You know, I think of the Atlantic City scene in Ragtime. Yeah, yeah. A few other things I can't think of off the top of my head, but. Alright, so uh, that should wrap it up for this week. I would like to remind listeners that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone or your Android device. Uh, iHeartRadio plays us. Google Play uh, plays us. Uh, tune in on your Amazon Echo plays us or anywhere else that you can listen to find our podcast, you can uh, listen to us as well as uh, Broadway World Radio pl- plays us, they stream us at noon on Wednesdays, Thursdays at 7pm and Saturdays at 2pm Contact information for Michael, for Jenna, for me as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today including uh, Chris Harkham's links and uh, Jessica Malasky's links, things like that can all be found at BroadwayRadio.com so, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Jenna Tessa Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to your Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye bye,
4: bye,
0: bye. Downtown in the pinball arcade, with his head full of pool hall pictures and songs from the hit parade, he'd be singing bye by love while he was racking up his free play. Let those rock and roll choir boys come and carry us away. Sometimes Chicky had the car running at a car, but Melvin with his hot wire head we'd all go looking for a party looking to raise Jesus up from the dead. And I'd be kissing in the back seat, drilling to the brander like things that he said. And we'd be rolling, rolling rock and roll